Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I'm currently on a book tour around the United States and hope to see you. Find the schedule of my events at warisalie.org. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Dr. Gregory Shupak. He has a PhD in literary studies and teaches media studies at the University of Guelph in Toronto. He is an activist and a fiction writer, and his political analysis, which we'll be talking about, appears regularly in Jacobin, Middle East Eye, and elsewhere. Uh, Greg Shupak, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I read a couple of articles that I want to bring up by you recently. One is called The Case Against Bombing ISIS, and the other is called Abolish the Military. Let's let's start with the first one and see where it goes and, and hopefully sure. get to the second. What, what is the case against bombing ISIS? I guess to, to put it in the, the most concise terms possible, I would describe it as uh, the following, that the U.S.-led uh, campaign against ISIS, the military campaign against ISIS, is or has already resulted in a fairly uh, large number of civilian casualties, uh, just over a thousand as, uh, at minimum, uh, last time I checked. And I think that considering that this war doesn't in any way address the underlying causes that gave rise to ISIS and is in fact a further enactment of some of the very causes that did lead to the rise of ISIS. I think that those civilian deaths are likely to be in vain and that even if this particular configuration that we call ISIS uh, is defeated in some sense, that's not going to actually uh, bring any kind of peace and security to the people living in the region, but perhaps empower another similar group or create conditions under which a comparable group uh, that we haven't heard of yet comes into existence. These civilian casualty figures, I, I mean, these are sort of what's called passive reporting, right? I mean, this is what turns up in the in the news where when scientific studies have gone and been done door to door and so forth afterwards, uh, as in Iraq, the casualties end up being much higher than anybody thought. Um, what do we... What do we really know so far in terms of of civilian deaths in in the campaign against ISIS? Yeah, I mean exactly as you say, it is uh, it is a very uh, conservative method of arriving at these totals. So uh, the most recent, to be more precise, figure that I see as of right now, according to AirWars.org, which is uh, a very useful organization for reporting on civilian casualties in this conflict. The most up-to-date number they have is uh, 1,057 um, minimum civilians likely killed in Iraq and Syria by the U.S.-led coalition. Um, but the, the uh, threshold that they have for uh, arriving at that number is pretty um, rigorous. Uh, they, they are going on... Uh, they're arriving at that figure based on casualties that they can confirm through as you say, external reports or media reports. As we've seen in Iraq, that type of research leads to much lower casualty figures than when one saw the uh, type of research done by The Lancet, which um, carried out the types of methods that I think you were describing that paint 
a much more dire picture when when uh, these kind of aggregate models are put into place, and you end up arriving at at uh, calculations where there's over a million dead or or many many hundreds of thousands of civilians dead in Iraq. So I think it's perfectly reasonable to conclude that this this figure of one, uh, just over a thousand that I refer to is actually uh, a lot lower than is the reality. Um, and in fact. The Air Wars website will uh, will always also note what the um, rep- just reported or claimed number of civilians are. Um, so, in other words, civilian casualties that they cannot verify, and those are uh, upward of uh, around three thousand last I saw. So, I mean, I think it's perfectly plausible that something closer to that is what uh, what the total is at this stage, um, but as you suggest, one on-the-ground, um, uh, really uh, systematic research is carried out, it's, uh, I think, no stretch to imagine that we could look be looking at much, much higher totals once we take into account not just bombing, but also uh, things like the lives lost due to infrastructure damage, um, due to people fleeing the bombing, and uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. People are literally starving to death, and all of this uh, sure. these resources are going into bombing rather than getting them food. Uh, the 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 other thing is this this word civilian. I mean, we're distinguishing the civilian deaths from the non-civilian deaths, uh, presumably because the non-civilian deaths are a are a good in themselves, uh, which some yeah. of, some of us might not agree with, uh, or they serve some greater purpose. <laughs> but if we're but if we're going to make the case that this is that this is not serving some greater purpose, uh, then maybe we have to consider all deaths uh, to be a downside uh, to the operation. Um, I, I mean, is it is it in vain, as you say, that they're going to uh, continue trying to destroy ISIS, uh, or uh, or is it actually counterproductive? Is it actually something that ISIS desires? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, well, I think it's both. I think it's vain, in vain uh, and uh, counterproductive. I say I think those are sort of two, two um, consequences that are fused in the sense that we can't in any way rationalize the deaths of, of civilians. And as you say, we, I think there, there's a good case to be made about, uh, to, to think critically about what civilians actually uh, means when we distinguish it from fighters in this type of context, but um, yeah, I think, I think that there's, there's definitely benefits for ISIS from having uh, this type of campaign enacted. Um, I mean, it, it forces, uh, it, it, for one thing, makes people more dependent upon them in the territories that they control, uh, and it it uh, adds to their prestige, in a sense, to say, okay, well, you know, ISIS is uh, fighting the uh, Western forces that have wrought such uh, devastation in the region, and look, now they're, do- you know, here they are doing it again. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, it's something that will, at least in certain quarters, add to ISIS's uh, 
prestige. Yeah, I, I, the weirdest thing about uh, ISIS, as numerous past uh, examples of such groups, is that it is presented to the U.S. public as having come out of nowhere in 2014. Where, mm-hmm. where, where do you think ISIS came from? Um, well, I mean, I think that there's a pretty strong record of evidence that it has come out of uh, a combination of. Uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Um, I talk about this at some length in my Jacobin article, The Case Against Bombing ISIS. Um, so you have people like Lydia Wilson, an Oxford researcher who has interviewed uh, imprisoned ISIS fighters, and she, you know her conclusions are that uh, there's a very, very direct link between the U.S. invasion and destruction and occupation of Iraq and the uh, the rise of ISIS. Um, and, and, I mean, she's far from the only one. She quotes uh, Douglas Stone, a U.S. general who oversaw Iraqi detainees uh, in Iraq during the U.S. occupation, and he says uh, that, quote, every single detainee, end quote, that he uh, encountered in the prison complained about the disintegration of security brought on by the American invasion. Um, so, and, and, I mean, you know, I could go on listing similar yeah. types of observations, but to speak to your other question, uh, or sorry, to speak to the other half of the question, uh, Syria, we see uh, a different scenario, but uh, nevertheless a key role played by the United States in terms of uh, laying the groundwork for ISIS. So, um, there, the U.S. government uh, has had uh, a long-standing desire to replace the Syrian government with someone more um, reliable in this, or someone more pliable, you might say. Um, it's true that there have been times when the uh, Syrian government has worked with the U.S. government to. Uh, you know, re- render um, U.S. detainees and so on, or in the uh, 1991 Gulf War. Um, nevertheless, if you look at something like the WikiLeaks documents uh, on Syria, it's quite clear that uh, the Bush administration had a very strong desire to uh, overthrow the Syrian government, and uh, that the Obama administration, uh, despite a bit of a change in rhetoric, never really abandoned the regime uh, change strategy in Syria. Um, and since the, well, actually, I was going to say since the um, outbreak of war in Syria, but it actually predates that when the WikiLeaks documents suggest there was a, uh, a uh, an effort to um, foster sectarian uh, discontent in Syria by the U.S. government, um, once that actually came to manifest itself, I suppose, in the uh, in the Syrian war, uh, the U.S. and particularly its allies, uh, Turkey probably the most, but also Qatar, Saudi Arabia, um, played, uh, Jordan as well, played uh, a major role in fostering the uh, sectarian... Um, Sunni-led uh, Takfiri forces uh, 
many of which found expression in uh, in in ISIS or in uh, very similar groups, whether that's Jihad al-Nusra, the um, Al-Qaeda formation in Syria, or the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria, I should say. Um, and more generally, um, arming all kinds of Syrian opposition groups, and just as importantly, um, perhaps more importantly, undermining efforts for a negotiated settlement in Syria, uh, I think creates the the um, types of conditions that are ideal for ISIS, which is um, horrendous warfare and societal collapse. Yeah, we're, we're speaking with Gregory Shupak uh, about his articles in Jacobin, including the case against bombing ISIS. Uh, it, it seems like obviously Syria is a is a very complex situation and uh, has included numerous forces, in, including legitimate grievances uh, against the government by the people of Syria. But uh, what I think is most interesting here, and I and I think you. Uh, agree in your article, and you cite a, a U.S. government report from 2012 that that the United States has not been just uh, uh, arming Al Qaeda without knowing it, uh, or trying to overthrow the government with some sort of plan for what comes next, but has you know knowingly expected that uh, it would create disaster and uh, the sort of forces that you see in ISIS, uh, and has continued down this path anyway. Is that right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So um, what you're referring to is the uh, Defense Intelligence Agency report from 2012, um, which can be, you know, aspects of it can be interpreted in different ways, but um, nevertheless it remains true that the document does say uh, the West, Turkey, and the, the Gulf states supported the Syrian op- opposition um, and admits that... Uh, the Syrian war could result in the creation of a Salafist principality in eastern Syria, and notes, and I quote, that this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition want in order to isolate the Syrian regime. Um, And, you know, we had comments from uh, uh, U.S. General Martin Dempsey telling the Senate Armed Services Committee in 2014 that America's uh, Arab allies as he put it, we're funding ISIS, and uh, Joe Biden uh, said the same also in 2014, though he quickly tried to walk that back. Um, so, I mean, it's uh, it, it's certainly the case that, yes, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that the entire uh, opposition to the Syrian government is some U.S. government plot. Uh, what I am suggesting is that the U.S. role in Syria has uh, made life much worse for Syrians and has needlessly prolonged the war and empowered uh, some of the worst elements of the Syrian opposition. Um, So, you know, as much as uh, one would um, like like Syrians to have uh, a, a better government than they currently do, the point to keep in mind here is that the United States policy is not in any way geared towards giving Syrians a, uh, you know, a more democratic future or uh, some human rights respecting government. Uh, it's rather an effort uh, to 
replace the current government of Syria with uh, somebody amenable to the United States, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. And if you look at all of those governments, you can see that uh, human rights and democracy are not overriding concerns of theirs. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah. It, it, uh, it, it seems like the U.S. public is often given by the media a sort of cartoonish idea of overthrowing governments or overthrowing terrorist organizations slash governments like ISIS with this idea that if certain leaders were murdered and the organization was shut down, uh, all would be well. Uh, it doesn't take into, into account poverty and resentment and violence and grievances and armaments and uh, and underlying factors. And I think you make a, a couple of good points in your article that if somehow ISIS ceased to exist, a new organization with a different name would take its place, uh, or ISIS would move its operations to Libya or Yemen, where the United States is facilitating the growth of similar uh, organizations. Can you elaborate on that sure yeah i mean it's uh it it uh, libya is a particularly useful case for if we're thinking about syria in the sense that okay well yeah so the u.s very directly carried out a full scale well the u.s and its allies uh in nato and uh, in uh in the gulf carried out a full-blown uh military intervention in libya and yeah, okay, so the dictator's overthrown in Libya. Well, look what has resulted since. I mean, a complete uh, complete collapse of the society. Uh, total wanton violence um, and complete political instability with a lot of uh, factions in power that have some, have, you know, carried out some pretty... Uh, ugly violence, such as uh, you know the ethnic cleansing of the Tawarga, for example, a uh, one of the uh, Black African communities in Libya. Um, so, I mean, yeah, as, as you're suggesting, it's not as though we can just say, okay, well, yeah, replace Gaddafi, replace Saddam Hussein, replace Bashar al-Assad, and somehow uh, this solves all of the problems in those societies. Um, I would also add that one reason that doesn't happen is that you know the U.S.'s uh, foreign policy goals are not to actually bring you know democracy, human rights, uh, prosperity, and security to any of these countries. It's rather to uh, dominate them, and that's by its uh, that that set of goals, which I, I try to explain and offer evidence for in the uh, Case Against Bombing ISIS article, I think is a pretty clear reason as to why we can't expect, uh, you know, democracy and, you know, human rights respecting uh, governments in countries where the U.S. over carries out a regime change. We can't expect democracy and human rights to emerge because that's not what the U.S. is trying to install anyway. So why would the uh, outcome uh, resemble 
that when that's not even the goal. Yeah, I, I think you do make a good case in the article that the goal is global domination uh, with perhaps a side uh, associated goal of profiteering. Uh, and and you look at the arms trade, which you know I think a lot of people in the United States have no idea that the majority of weapons sold to the Middle East are from the United States. Uh, that, that goal of, of profiteering off the arms trade almost seems to conflict at times with the goal of domination in that the U.S. finds itself up against U.S. weapons. Uh, it, how, how, big, how big a factor in Middle East violence uh, is the, the arming of people in the Middle East by U.S. weapons companies? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a major factor, um, and uh, you, know, you don't have to necessarily even dig very deep to find this. Um, so the New York Times had a report uh, last uh, April, I believe it was, that uh, I think right in the headline uh, went so far as to say that um, uh, U.S. arms are directly responsible for fueling war in the region. Um, and, yeah, I think that it's the, I mean, the business of war in America is massive, and not just America, but in its allied states like Britain and Canada. Um, and, yeah, I think that it's, one can't necessarily assume that the U.S. goal is necessarily to create uh, stable societies in the Middle East, in part because so much of the American elite depends upon... Um, the uh, the sales of weapons and not just weapons but all of the uh, other <coughs> excuse me, all of the other uh, supporting infrastructure along with that um, so I mean can one even uh, conceive of a scenario at least I mean I can't where the United States is says okay well we recognize that as the New York Times says are pouring uh, of weapons into the Middle East is fueling uh, proxy wars and sectarian conflict. So therefore, let's stop doing that. That may be a logical uh, conclusion to draw, but when you have um, company after company making billions upon billions for each of those wars, and these companies are extremely well connected in Washington, um, is, is it? does anybody believe, I don't, that this is going to, you know, stop, right? I mean, it's not like the people in power in America don't know what's going on, right? They're not just uh, bumbling along. Um, if the New York Times can point it out, and if I can point it out, then, you know, the, uh, the you know, frankly, intelligent people who are uh, running the Pentagon, who are in the elite business class are well aware of what's going on. Um, they may not be nice or morally sound people, but they're not morons. Um, yeah. The, I mean, I just, just to make one sort of quick point about how this works, and I mean, there's all kinds of cases that I explore in the article uh, as far as what particular companies made off of, or, or uh, were able to uh, make in Iraq war profiteering, but, and then also in uh, more recent contracts that were issued for uh, fighting ISIS, um, 
to see how this works, I'll just point to one example, which, um, according to a, the Daily Beast report, a company called AM General is uh, supplying um, uh, is supplying the Iraqi government, the U.S. allied Iraqi government, with 160 U.S. built Humvees. Um, General Dynamic is also selling the country millions of dollars worth of tank ammunition. Um, and another company named SOS International uh, has been awarded $400 million to provide services such as private security, um, again, in, in Iraq now, in the context of fighting ISIS. Well, this SOS International, its board of advisors include Paul Wolfowitz and uh, Paul Butler, a, a, a former special assistant to Donald Rumsfeld. Paul Wolfowitz was Undersecretary of Defense under Rumsfeld in the Bush administration, for anybody who doesn't know that. So, I mean, to me, this illustrates the bipartisan uh, imperialist consensus in American politics that we have these hard right, these um, neoconservative right-wing figures uh, associated with uh, Rumsfeld and, in fact, part of his defense department, and they're now working at companies profiting very directly off of a war being carried out by a democratic administration. Yeah, a number of them are working at universities spreading the ideology that supports yes. uh, this uh, sort of institution. And, and I think the solution is, is going to come uh, from, you know, canceling the, the profiteering. But that's not going to happen until we build a movement around the title of your other article that we've left very little time for, but I highly recommend people read called Abolish the Military, where you look at uh, a number of the negative impacts of, of militarism, including uh, environmental and humanitarian, and and, uh, and including in particular, I think, uh, what you start with, which is, is less discussed, I think, by many opponents of war, and that is how militarism abroad fuels racism and sexism in the United States. Can you, can you explain that briefly? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, on, on, at even, I think, the most superficial level, it's relatively obvious that, I mean, look at the, uh, the countries that America, the American military has attacked uh, since World War II. So whether we're talking about um, Korea, um, Indochina, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, all of these countries are populated. Um, you could add Libya as well. You could, all of these countries are populated by uh, people of color, and the in in every war, uh, a, a sort of new lexicon uh, gains traction at uh, at home, which uh, creates or contributes to racism against uh, people from. Uh, people in America from the uh, communities that are or originating from the countries being attacked overseas, or not even necessarily originating from or, ha or descending from them, but just maybe vaguely looking like they might have uh, ancestry in, you know, uh, the Middle East or in uh, uh, Southeast Asia or wherever. Um, so, I mean, that that's one angle, one aspect of the connection between. U.S. imperialism and racism. Uh, I mean, there's also the fact that there's a major problem with uh, uh, neo-Nazism and white supremacy 
um, within the U.S. military, and some of the pieces I link to explore that in uh, more detail. We, we will, um, we will Greg, we will have to bring you back for another show to, to go into that topic, I'm afraid. We oh, could sure. go for hours, but we're, we're out of time. I'll have the link up at talknationradio.org uh, to both of these articles. Uh, Gregory Shupak, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you very much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. I'm traveling around the United States right now doing events with my new book, War is a Lie, second edition. I hope to see you. Find the schedule of events at warisalie.org. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.